1: California, and Texas, and New York, and we're going to South Dakota, and Oregon, and Washington, and Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the second floor of the AC building at Bethel University, for now, for now. it's Election Shock Therapy. Guys, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Chinese New Year, <laughs> yeah. Happy State of the Union. Welcome uh, back to the to the podcast feed. I'm happy end of the shutdown. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, so many things for to for celebrate. <laughs> uh, joining me here for now in the <laughs> second floor of the AC building is Andy Bramson, Metro Crum And, Mitchell and I keep, I'm I'm stressing that for now. We won't belabor this because uh, I'm sure you tuned into here to hear about Bethel, uh, Bethel's giant fire drill of a, of rearrangement, but. Um, our podcast feed is called Live from AC Second. You can reach us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com. However, we're not going to be live from AC Second for all that much longer.
0: Unless um, the engineers are very generous with their space. Or unless we, unless we take
1: the fourth floor of the CC building and retitle it Ooh. AC Second. Oh, no, I like way. this. I like this. Maybe we so. could
0: call our lounge like AC Second Lounge. <laughs> Something. We could do that.
1: Yeah. There's, there's ways around this. So I'm sure you, uh, you don't need to hear more about our move, but we'll be relocating sometime in the summer. And, but in the meantime, it's been a long time since we gathered together to wow. talk about politics. That's and I just want to move. remind people who are tuning in this feed who have probably listened to us before. But if you're listening to us for the first time, uh, we're three political scientists mm-hmm. with, different, uh, pedagog- with different trainings, uh, different areas of expertise. But uh, we are not pundits. Right. and it's not our job to come in and 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 bark about uh who's up and who's down, who's winning, who's losing, um who's on fire um uh who in this, who in Virginia is not wearing blackface <laughs> apparently um, stars. Uh, it's our job to think about our discipline and about the scholarship of political science and to apply the knowledge and methods of our discipline to some current mm-hmm. events and we've had a mm-hmm. lot of current <laughs> events uh since we since we last uh, gathered uh we've 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 been uh, um we've gone to our separate ways we were gone in january it was uh, our our producer was traveling our um uh dr
2: Crum, you were teaching um a course yep. um and um what were you teaching? I was teaching CWC, which is Christianity and Western Cultures, uh, which essentially, if you... I, I know most of our listeners are probably from Bethel, so you are very aware of CWC, but if you're not, uh, this is essentially Bethel's Introduction to Western Civilization course. Uh, but uh, it's, I would say, more interactive and engaged in some ways than, than most intros to Western Civ, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when we do it over interim. Uh, it involves a lot of uh, interactive online museums. Uh, it also mm-hmm. involves... Uh, Documentary style videos that interview various Bethel professors. And then, of course, we also have uh, three hours every day <laughs> of uh, interaction uh, where we play, where we literally play games. Um, that are review games like like CWC Taboo. Yeah. Not, we're not just playing like Risk and Monopoly. No, here. this is not yeah. Risk and Monopoly, <laughs> but this is like CWC Taboo. Um, and of course, we also have lots of discussions and in, in-depth uh, examinations of uh, uh, basically core texts. So things from Plato, Aristotle, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, etc.
1: So. so I just I'm amazed that you uh, and and a, and get a, a co-teacher mm-hmm. make yep. your way through the bulk of the history of Western
2: civilization in 18 days. It, it is it is a th- yeah it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 fun. We we start you know you you, you basically cover about you know somewhere between three to four hundred to a thousand years every day. It's wow. pretty much what it boils down to. Um, it, it's not it's well and and. Part of, part of what's good about that is you do get, I think, a better sense of the overall sweep of Western history, um, and you see the connections a lot easier. It's much easier to sort of, you know, if you just talked about and spent, you know, a couple of days on the Greeks to see the connections right. of the Greeks to, you know, the m- medieval theologians uh, if, you know, if you're only separated by a few days um, in terms of talking about them and reading them and things like that. So in that way, it's very beneficial. But, uh, but yeah, it's a lot really fast. It's sort of a fire hose, Yeah. And right. while you were doing that, Professor Bramson spent his interim producing a play. Among
1: others, yeah. The, so he, <laughs> um, I
0: was teaching the second uh, round of Western humanities, and we look at the Renaissance and Reformation. Lots of Reformation theology, um, why the Protestants uh, broke from the Catholic Church, Catholic responses, um, and then we look at a little bit of the Renaissance thinkers. Particularly, we talk about Machiavelli, which is fun for me as a yeah. political scientist, and that kind of shift toward modern thought. Um, and then, yeah, we do have the students um, read, discuss. Um, and then perform um, Shakespeare's <laughs> Henry V, which is a lot of fun. It's really engaging. Um, they have a great time. It's great memories. And some of these students usually look back on and say that was that was really a cool experience. So. Some. Some. <laughs> no, actually, well, most of I mean, Most of the humanities students I've talked to will talk about that as one of the top experiences. Okay. It's, it, they get intimidated going in. I think when they're going in, there's a lot of, like, sort of the deer in the headlights kind of expression <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, about like, I have to be in a play in front of people, right? <laughs> um, but once you do it, it's sort of this cool bonding experience like, wow, we did that. And that was actually went quite well, right? Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. considering we yeah. make them put it together in you know basically a week, week and a half. So um, it was well done. And my section did a nice job with their part of the play. So that was good.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I see that both of you uh, have survived the shutdown.
0: Yeah. It's yep. not that inconvenient for me, actually, um, since I'm not employed by the government. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Bethel yep. kept paying me during this time, oh, yeah. which was great. Yep. Thank you, Bethel.
1: Mm-hmm. Your, I, I did wonder, and I, and I don't know the answer to this, and uh, this was, of course, uh, one of the longest shutdowns in American history, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly one of the longest shutdowns in modern American history, yep. and ultimately seemed much ado about very little. The shutdown yep. ended... With very thi- very anything with nothing very conclusive happening, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so other than a renewed vigor towards negotiations and, and incre- a real likelihood that we could be facing another shutdown in just a couple of weeks? Yep. yep.
0: That's fair.
1: Is this going to be a new and increasing feature of, of, of American politics now that we have divided government with uh, Democrats controlling the House, are we, are, will we see an expansion of the shutdown?
2: Well, I mean, uh, I guess the first thing is to note is this isn't particularly new. Um, we've yeah. seen any, the increasing use of shutdowns as a political tool for the last, I mean, really decade, I guess. Um, okay. This has been an, uh, something we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw this a couple of times during President Obama's uh, presidency. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's essentially uh, it's usually seen as as as. Um, Sort of a high-level threat that nobody wants. Nobody really wants a shutdown to happen. Um, but it's sort of it's sort of it's sort of a game of chicken, where basically mm-hmm. you're hoping that the other side will see it as worse than you see it, and right. so they will cave on whatever demands you're making. Um, and then, if you know, just like in the game of chicken, where you know you're driving the cars very quickly, very fast towards each other, right. if nobody blinks and nobody swerves, um, <laughs> then you actually crash and everybody loses. Which is essentially what 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 happens when you see a shutdown. Mm-hmm. Um, Although in a shutdown sense, the the, the
1: the chicken game breaks in a little bit because it's a slow motion crash. Well, this every is true. day <laughs> the the pain from the shutdown
2: compounds right. slightly. The crashing yes. just keeps happening. <laughs> right. Right. <Yeah. laughs> Yes, uh, but essentially that's but but essentially I mean it, it boils down to I mean oftentimes you, you, the political actors will essentially be making sort of rational calculations about what do they think the impact of the shutdown is going to be on their political opponents mm-hmm. um, versus them, and if everybody concludes they think it's going to be worse for everybody else, um, then they go ahead and let it happen, um, mm-hmm. and oftentimes it does end up being worse. Uh, for, for one side or the other, um, mm-hmm. but it's not always clear at the outset who that's going to be
1: why not I, I, that's I'm glad you mentioned that because that's exactly yeah. what I wanted to ask the two of you about
2: right so well it's it gets a little bit foggy in a couple of ways I mean one of the ways that the, one of the ways it gets tricky is a lot of it is driven by media narrative of course mm-hmm. and so it part of it depends on uh, who's able to sort of control what the story is of why the shutdown is happening. And if you're very good at, you know, basically offering a spin as to why mm-hmm. we have this shutdown, um, then you can make it more painful for your opponents. So, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. during our most recent shutdown, um, the story that uh, the Trump administration was trying to sell was essentially that the shutdown is happening because they care about national security and the Democrats don't, and so they're, and so they're just trying right. to to... Right. to, to, to engage in matters of national security. Mm -hmm. Um, The Democrats, on the other hand, were saying that no, national security wasn't a problem and in fact, this was just about uh, the president wanting some kind of um, sort of glory move for himself, basically right, a wall right. that was more in their description, sort of more of a monument to him than actually needed for security. And in particular, of course, the Democrats had a, had an especially effective uh, club because President Trump himself had said that he was responsible for the shutdown and that he would take full responsibility for it in a public meeting with uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. So was right. that
1: just an enormous gaffe on his part, a complete misplay of his hand?
2: Uh, I yes, that seems pretty <laughs> sure clear. Answer. Yes, uh, in, the short answer is yes. Uh, and I think a lot of that speaks to President Trump's inexperience in many ways mm-hmm. in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to his mind, again, I think to to someone who's inexperienced and who's coming to a shutdown for the first time, uh, if you haven't seen this happen in the past, you sort of you don't realize that this is going to have neg- we'll have negative impacts on everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. will suffer to some degree, including all of the politicians involved. Right. Um, and in addition to that, the person who is blamed for the shutdown suffers the most. It's not, it doesn't matter whose position is right. It doesn't matter who the American people even think in the end maybe is, you know, has the better policies that right. they're fighting for. The real, what it boils down to is the American people very quickly decide the shutdown is a bad thing, because it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so very quickly their question is not so much whose policies are right or wrong their question is who is to blame for this thing being shut down and because president trump had you know president trump essentially made the mistake of thinking the shutdown fight would be over whose policies should prevail and not over who who would shoulder blame Mm -hmm. Uh, chuck schumer and nancy pelosi who've been around for a while they've seen this before they knew that it would boil down to blame not policies and so they knew that as soon as president trump had essentially given up the game on blame that they were going to win this thing and they did essentially Mm -hmm. And I
0: think, I mean, I add a couple things. One is, I mean, I agree with Mitch, like, this is an older strategy. I mean, like, we saw this during the Clinton years, right, mm-hmm. after Clinton yep. was faced by a Republican Congress in 95, right? I mean, you have a pretty extended shutdown, not this long, but, you know, between them and which Clinton was widely perceived as winning, right, mm-hmm. um, the kind of, you know, war for minds, right? Um, I think what this tracks with is something we've talked about a lot in this podcast is something political scientists have been looking at for a long time, which is party polarization, right? Yeah. It's as the parties become increasingly kind of ideologically coherent, in other words, Republicans become increasingly consistently conservative, there are fewer and fewer liberal or even moderate Republicans, right? Um, Democrats become c- consistently much more liberal. There are fewer and fewer conservative or even moderate Democrats, right? Um, it becomes harder and harder for the parties to compromise, right? And so when you have divided government, when you have a president of one party in a House or Senate or both of the other party, Um, There's just less shared policy space, basically, um, which makes it harder, and then that does make it appealing to go to these high-stakes schemes. I think the other miscalculation our current president made is to think that presidents usually win these, and indeed they do, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is easier to make the case as a one unified leader, right, the executive, uh, as opposed to this sort of messy thing of, you know, there's 435 House members, 100 senators, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and so the president can make the case, here's, if only these people would be reasonable, what would happen, right? So I think saying that hurt him, as Mitchell pointed out. I think the other thing that hurt him in this a little bit too was that people realized, right, that um, he had a Republican Congress in December, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it was so urgent to get this wall through, right, why could he and his party not get that funding passed? Why could they not succeed? And so if if he couldn't sell this to his own party when they controlled everything and they were in session in December, right, uh, it becomes much harder to blame chuck schumer and nancy pelosi successfully for boy are you just being so difficult and ignoring a national security crisis his own party didn't ultimately sufficiently buy this um you know the month before let me ask you on that so
1: was the trump administration were they trying to get a wall funding passed under republican control of the house
2: they did early on Mm -hmm. so uh so er, so And when I say early on, I I don't mean too early on. Uh, It wasn't until later in 2017 that they actually really pursued uh, funding for the wall. Um, But at that point, there was sort of a decision that the Republicans had to make, and there was particularly with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, on what what are our priorities. Do we prioritize the wall? Do we prioritize tax cuts? Do we prioritize repeal of the Affordable Care Act? Um, And basically the wall got shuttled off um, by particularly the Republicans in Congress as a very secondary concern. Mm -hmm. Um, And And a potentially divisive one. And a potentially divisive one, absolutely. And they felt that it would be much easier and better for them if they did something that could unify the party and very clearly get a majority, which was the tax cuts, which ultimately ended up happening. Um, But the president at the time, and again, this probably speaks to his inexperience, um, if he had cared about a wall, of course, as we know, presidents lose political capital as yeah. their presidencies progress. If this was going to be the priority, it should have been pushed immediately, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is sort of the same mistake that uh, Jimmy Carter made, um, you know, essentially waiting uh, over six months to really send his serious proposals to Congress. Yeah. Um, and by the time he got his, you know, by the time Jimmy Carter got his proposals to Congress, Congress had moved on. They were looking at other things and yeah. he'd lost a lot of his political ca- capital. And in the same way, Trump is now... Facing a situation where he's lost most of his political capital, and indeed now that he's lost, um, his party no longer controls both chambers in Congress, right. has lost a lot of uh, muscle to actually mm-hmm. actually accomplish anything substantive in terms of policy. Right. Did it, did he then perform a different kind
1: of structural or a misplay of his cards by early on in the campaign, and then even once he was elected, saying that he was going to build a wall and Mexico was going to finance it or Mexico was going to pay for it? Right, uh, he could. Is, did he sort of preclude himself from immediately sending legislation to Congress, mandating how Congress would pay for a, for wall
2: funding instead? Yeah, that's true. Uh, that? Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was of. it was really difficult, uh, and early on, I, it, he did try in certain odd ways, <laughs> uh, to, early on, where where he was trying to sort of use trade right. policy to try to convince Mexico. Um, to actually send some form of funding um, right. for, 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 for a border wall um, he's
1: maintaining now that the revisions to NAFTA right. will yield savings to the United States right. and that's the way that Mexico's paying for the wall right. so he's tried right. to square that rhetorical right. circle
2: right right yep. Um, yep.
0: which I mean yeah that's about as good a job as he's going to do on that right like you're yeah. clearly never going to get Mexico to pay for the wall
2: they said this in 2016 we're not paying for a wall and right. like indeed you're not why would you <laughs> Right. So. um, So, yeah, it's it that 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 rhetorically certainly makes it difficult. Um, Nonetheless, if he if and and, and part of this comes down to a question, too, of how much a priority the wall was for Trump until recently. I mean, this was the other thing that that's that's happened. And I think this is one of the interesting things about Trump. And I think we again, this comes back to thinking about sort of the priming and framing of media narratives. Um, particularly because part of the reason that Trump suddenly seemed to take, uh, the wall more seriously was, uh, in particular right wing, uh, media sources, particularly people like Ann Coulter. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I can't remember who, maybe Rush Limbaugh. I can't remember who else was real. I know Ann Coulter was, was, was a major firebrand on this. Mm-hmm. Essentially said that if president Trump caved on this, then his presidency, she would, she would argue that his presidency was over, right. that essentially he was a failed president. Um, and uh, and indeed, even after he uh, got, went ahead and let the and let the shutdown in temporarily, she said mm-hmm. that he was as weak as George H.W. Bush, um, which is yeah. um, a pretty dicey thing to say for a lot of reasons. But nonetheless, uh, right. she in, in many ways, one of the things to think about is sort of the way that this is being framed um, for the Republican base. Yeah. And so if you think about the Republican base uh, and who Trump feels like he needs to cater to, in particular to mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. appeal for re-election, he now is feeling essentially that, that, that re-election push that if this promise falls through, maybe people aren't going to be enthused mm-hmm. and come out and vote for him again in two years. Yeah. So that's a big driver for him now that wasn't there um you know a year and a half ago or two years ago um when he had just won and he felt like he didn't need to worry that much about Mm -hmm. what the base thought Mm -hmm. because because they liked him and they had just voted for him yeah
0: and i mean like and i guess i'll defend the president's political instincts here for a minute on that right i think if you think about what what case trump wants to make in 2020 right um, if he can get some version of the wall, right, and if he can get some some funding to put something up on the border, right, then he comes back to his voters in 2020 and says, look what I accomplished for you, right? Mm-hmm. I got a really large tax cut for you, um, you know, historically, historically large, very big, very beautiful, right? <laughs> um, I got a wall built, um, and I got Mexico to pay for it. I mean, you know, kind of, sort of. Um, and I – Nominated lots of conservative judges, which I promised you I would do, right? Mm-hmm. Which um, in fact you actually kind of, has. I didn't get right. rid of Obamacare, maybe, but I eviscerated the mandate, right? So I basically took the teeth from it. Um, so basically, I mean, like he can he can come back and kind of claim that now. There's there's counter cases to all that, and you know we can talk about whether the tax cut was at all a good idea. When you're talking about like just you know <laughs> you know failing to cut funding or cut spending in government, but then you know cutting the taxes like that, but you know in terms of his core voters that's the kind of case he comes back Mm -hmm. back and makes i think and and for a lot of them it's going to be really compelling right yep
1: so let me ask you about some scenarios by which this negotiation ends so right now congressional democrats and republicans are negotiating about immigration Mm -hmm. uh, security um i think the white house is involved in those negotiations Mm -hmm. but it's not a key is not a prime player at this point but there are a couple ways there are a couple pathways out and i'm curious to see how you describe the likelihood of these pathways Pathway 1 is sort of the classic American political compromise system. Um, Democrats give a little. Republicans give a little. The White House gives a little. Donald Trump gets some money for border security. Maybe he gets Mm -hmm. some additional fencing. Mm -hmm. Maybe he just doesn't get fencing at all. Maybe he gets drones and... Um, I don't know. A, a, a <laughs> attack falcons. I have no idea. Something you know. <laughs> better surveillance systems at border checkpoints. Very, aggressive, like very there, aggressive. There are pigeons. there are some there are some places at which I think a lot of Democrats would probably sign off on some increased border securities, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. points sure. of entry, right, ports, yeah. things like that. Right. Maybe he gets some of that mm-hmm. and not a wall, and they call it a day. Yep. Option two: uh, the system breaks down. Maybe we toy with another shutdown or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the president says, enough of Congress. I'm declaring a national emergency. Right. A national mm-hmm. emergency would allow him unilaterally to extract money from the Department of Defense's budget and mm-hmm. to essentially use de- military spending dollars to right. construct a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and he could claim that I, 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 I did it my way, Frank Sinatra mm-hmm. style. Um, option three is uh, the president backs down completely and just walks away from this, cuts his losses, and says, I'm... Uh, um, i the the these these recalcitrant democrats don't care about your security and i'm going to try and let them hang on this issue for mm-hmm. the next election mm-hmm. um there might be uh, and i guess option 4 is the error term of things that i haven't considered so <laughs> um, of these four kinds of options uh
2: what what's most likely uh i mean i don't know if i, I think that's I, th- I think no one knows at this moment yeah. i think i think that's the that's the key um it seems very it seems very likely at this point that the democrats are not going to move um particularly given that that uh, that they feel they're you know, emboldened th- by this they they're emboldened right i mean they 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 i think they feel that they're again sort of thinking in terms of rational calculations they feel like they've already seen that trump will back down once um mm-hmm. why not think he'll back down uh again mm-hmm. um, and uh in tr- and, and in terms of uh, Trump using emergency powers. He has said this, but then he's also waffled on this. And I think I think this mm-hmm. comes back to a lot of Republicans, particularly in the Senate, are beginning to push back mm-hmm. um, more strongly against some of President Trump's instincts on foreign policy in particular. Mm-hmm. And, and this is sort of a foreign policy issue. We saw um, this
1: especially when it was a wide rebuke of his Attempt to withdraw rapidly from mm-hmm. Afghanistan. For right, example. right, exactly. Yep.
2: yep, and and I think I think this is sort of a similar situation where Republicans, even though many of them aren't vocal about it, have been behind the scenes a little bit worried mm-hmm. um, about how much is being invested in this in this idea of a border wall, mm-hmm. um, and they're particularly worried about this idea of using emergency powers, mm-hmm. um, especially because you know the core idea behind spending in Congress and how most policy is supposed to be done in Congress is the main power of Congress is the power of the purse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so essentially for Congress's power is bound up in the president has pretty wide powers in terms of how they Enact government policy and how they carry out government policy, right. and you know we can have a lot of conversations about how good or bad that is, and how, mm-hmm. you know, how much power we've given to the president. I mean, there's even you know the the long-standing theory of the imperial presidency, which right. essentially gives the idea that the president has really overtaken the other branches in in, in, our, in our government, and and. Um, uh, in, in a large way in terms of power um, But even beyond that Even if we do have an imperial presidency That that, that has wide, wide-ranging wide powers The one power that Congress has held on to Is that power of the purse mm-hmm, right. um, And that power to basically rein in the president Or rein in the courts Or rein in whoever else they need to rein in By saying you can't spend money on this Until we have given you the go-ahead Until we've given the green light right. And if the president essentially were to take the step And saying well actually I don't have to wait for you um, To give the green light on spending right. For this massive project I'm just going to do it whenever I want that would be sort of crossing a pretty major river, um, where yep. Congress's power gets extremely diminished, even beyond where it is now, um, and it looks even more like the president uh, is essentially moving towards you know an imperial presidency where we've mm-hmm. lost a significant check on the presidency. And I think a lot of Republicans are worried about that idea of that kind of degradation of our constitutional system. I mean, this idea that the president doesn't have to obey the checks and balances outlined in the Constitution, um, and especially that core check of spending that right. that is supposed to be Congress's major, major power over the other branches. So I think, I think a lot of Republicans are, are really kind of, and, and, es- and essentially what they're also thinking, and this is where President Trump often isn't thinking about the long game. And a lot of Republicans are sort of thinking about what happens in 2020 or 2024 when a Democrat becomes president. And what happens when they say, well, you know, under President Trump, we establish the precedent that we don't need to follow the constitutional principles that Congress has the power of the purse. And I want to enact X, Y, and Z, you know, fill in the blank, major Mm -hmm. liberal policy. I mean, you could think about like the Green New Deal that was just proposed by major Democrats. So you say, what if the Democrats say, hey, we don't need Congress enact the green new deal we're going to make sure that the us becomes carbon neutral by 2030 just by the president say so because we no longer need to follow the constitutional system right
0: right and that's and that is i think a real danger and i i, I mean i do hope the republicans in congress take that seriously but i would um i i, what I wonder is like how far are the republicans willing to push this because so mm-hmm. far it seems to me they have shown very little will the republicans in congress to actually oppose the president i mean certain things they'll say but like, would they be willing, like, if he declared a national emergency to to say, this is actually abuse of power, and that's mm-hmm. and that's cause for impeachment, right? right? I mean, like, and that's where I'm not sure, are they willing to put their kind of money where their mouth is, right? I mean, like, they say, like, oh, the president shouldn't do these things. Um, but the other, I guess, scenario I wonder about, like, come back to your three Can Sundays. I actually just a c- oh, quick yeah. example in there? Yeah. Um, so, Betty
1: McCollum, who is right. the house rep for, for where Bethel, for Bethel. sits, yep. <laughs> um, is actually announced that she's going to launch investigations into... The the Trump administration's decision to use um, – to, mi- to reopen national parks during the shutdown using money that was designated for long-term structural improvements to America's parks. And basically, mm. they converted those into operating funds. Oh, weird. Um, through an uh, yeah, right. emergency act. Wow. Um, and so she's argued that this was yeah. a misuse of funding yep. during the shutdown, yep. and mm-hmm. she's going to launch investigations into this. Right. So there, th- there are, this is exactly the Congress attempting to hold on to those purse strings. Right, right. But of course,
0: Betty McCollum is from the Democratic Party. Yes, right? she is. So, I'm looking right. for a way so. to investigate the president. Right, right. Yep. right. Which is, okay, fine, but not going to go anywhere unless the Republicans ultimately jump on, right? Correct. So, yeah. um, so it's – I guess coming back to your three scenarios, I mean, what I wonder is to what extent the, the, con- the members of Congress don't want to push this president too far in particular because Donald Trump has shown himself to be, I mean, whatever else we can say, he's, he's kind of out of the box. He does his own thing. He's not, you know, he doesn't conform to normal political norms, right? Intemperate and, might um, be a good Intemperate word might be a good word. Right? <laughs> that, that could work, right? So, you know, th- I think there's also a question, if you're thinking long game, if you're also Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer thinking long game, right, do, how far do you want to push this president? I mean, sure, the national emergency could give you some precedent but i I do think ultimately the top leaders in congress do care about you know conforming to the constitution they care about retaining some real power for congress i think they're concerned i think even though they don't agree on policy particulars i think pelosi and schumer and mcconnell and uh, mccarthy do agree on that right and so there's a question like do you want to push this president too far or do you want to find some way to give a little bit right Mm -hmm. and so one one option would be to have a real negotiation where you actually say hey you know, we are willing to maybe even give you some kind of wall, right? The kind of, you know, limited wall you've, you've talked about. But we need some real protection for dreamers, right? Which is something the president did float. Now, he, he floated only a temporary protection. So I, I wonder if there's any room for negotiation mm-hmm. there. Because I, I'm still not convinced, despite all this, after three years, right? I'm still not really convinced that Donald Trump is actually all that hardline on this. I think he's chosen really? an issue that's, that's, yeah, I mean, I'm, like for so for example in the state of the union he said you know at one point like we want to make it open to people coming in we just want them to come in legally right i want Mm -hmm. more people coming here right um and i actually sort of inclined to say that that might actually reflect where he's at like i don't Hmm. i don't know how deeply he cares i think the one thing i think he cares passionately about is sort of the you know manufacturing jobs moving overseas american companies moving overseas i think that's something that's really maybe close to his heart but the, the immigration seems like something he jumped on as, like, this is a really useful issue to get people fired up at rallies, and then it continues to be a useful issue to fire up the base, right? But I wonder if he wouldn't be willing to take a deal, right, and say, like, I'll build my wall, I'll get my victory, I can go back to my base and say, yeah, I did this. And, yes, sure, I protected the kids, right, um, who were here and who, f- through no fault of their own, right, kind of had, had been brought here, and I, I agreed to sort of take that as the other side of that. And if, if the Democrats were to get something that really protected the dreamers, not just for two or three years, right, but for long-term, right, that gets harder to turn down. And
2: mm-hmm. that's the kind
0: of compromise that gets interesting. Now, I don't know if you can get enough Republicans on with that, but maybe. I, I feel like there could be enough in the Senate um, that would, would have some motivation to sign on to that. I mean, like, you know, you at least need to think about it if you're Rick Scott, for example, right, and, you're, or, and Marco Rubio, right, I mean, and you're running in Florida. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's at least an interesting conversation. So yeah i i guess it, in thinking about your different scenarios i i hope it's not scenario two i think scenario two is maybe somewhat likely but the president hasn't been really willing to pull the trigger so i'm gonna i'm gonna go convention, conventional political <laughs> science wisdom despite the weirdness of the times and say i think maybe one is a little more likely um, which is that you end up reaching some kind of deal um, and we move on but yeah. we'll, we'll see I'm not sure that's a good bet, but as Mitchell said, we don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> right.
1: It's, it's, it's a anti- test anti- anti- <laughs>
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm a little more pessimistic. I think Trump will use the, uh, the threat of an emergency to yeah. try to push his bargaining leverage, and I think
0: Republicans will call his bluff, and then I think he will call an emergency. Do you think it is, too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you're right. I just wonder if... I, I don't think Republicans in Congress want this to happen, and so... Do you find a way to mm-hmm. to kind of work yeah. around it? I mean, because the other option, right? That we didn't maybe this is in your f- category four, right? Is yeah. that you the, the Congress could ultimately decide we just come up with a deal over the president's head, right? Um, and we reopen g- government, um, and you know we we two thirds majority it, right? Now that's that's challenging, that's but very
1: challenging. It yeah. is very
0: challenging yeah. in this era, era with party polarization, but but maybe possible if, if they unite around sort of congressional power.
1: He had to show himself to be utterly recalcitrant. Yep. Um, and <laughs> I don't think we're that far from that. And well, but also um, in more, even more hardline than he is now. He's yeah. shown some softness yeah. in terms of oh, what yeah. he's willing to accept. Right. Yep. The, the nature and state of his yep. wall has yep. has has transmogrified quite a bit from oh, something yeah. from from concrete to uh, see-through now. steel, which. Oh, yeah. um, I understand what he's saying, but I can't ever hear that without picturing some kind of like yeah. weird metallurgical magic of like <laughs> crystal clear it's
2: steel. Mithrium.
0: Yeah, mithril. Yes, a mithril wall <laughs> well, to keep out the orcs. That was very when
2: expensive. I, when I when I hear it, I think of Star Trek and they have transparent aluminum. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yep. So. That works too. <laughs> we'll, we'll take just any Feel those bad things. if I was birds along the border,
0: <laughs> <laughs> smacking yeah, <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, on that note, let's turn towards – Will there be funding for, like, spraying off the wall from the bricks.
1: <laughs> I assume if it's made of transparent aluminum or mithril, it's self-cleaning.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah. Um, it just absorbs yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. Every
1: we day. already uh, – never mind. <laughs> I read a story about there's there's actually concrete that's being tested. Concrete that can absorb spray paint. So it's essentially oh, wow. graffiti-proof, spray, graffiti-proof wall.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's so, great. Yeah. Oh. That's exciting. <laughs> Anyway. That might be good for the border, actually, yeah. Perhaps. We could maybe pilot it there. Let's talk instead. Could they, like, can I float one other... Wi- <laughs> I just want to float one other idea about the wall. Oh, please. Like, what about private funding? Like, could, what about, could he privately fund a wall? Like, has that been floated in any Oh, yeah. Way? There wa- well, there I was mean, a like,
2: GoFundMe page for a while. Yeah. Um, it was attempting <laughs> Which raised <to> a,
0: <laughs> an extremely large amount of money, which has all, by the way, been
2: returned to people who, right. who promised it. Right, right. Yeah, it was somewhere this, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, it was like 10 or 11 million or something had been yeah. raised. Yeah.
0: Because um, I mean, like, you just get, like, you know, you get sponsors, you, you get your name on the your part of the wall, right? You get your brick. I mean, <laughs> this you know. is why the wall is
1: uh, a type issue is well suited to, you know, sausage slicing and other yeah. kinds of compromises. You know, you don't want to fund uh twelve hundred miles of wall, perhaps you'd like six hundred miles of wall. Yeah, perhaps right. you'll find a hundred miles of right. wall. Right. as long mm-hmm. as there's like a picture with some wall going up. Right. Right. He yeah. can declare victory and they can declare they yep. didn't give him what he wanted. Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. I mean that that's what sh- and that's what how compromises work, right? Everyone declares victory and the other side always says well, you didn't really give him what you know right. that, that thing. So yeah. um I, I still think there's space for that. But whether right. this president and this Congress can pull it off is a different question. Right. So. Um State of the Union,
1: uh, just about 40 hours ago. <laughs> Yay, it finally his happened. His second State of the Union address, <laughs> right. uh, his third address to a joint session of Congress. Yep. I don't really want to get into the State of the Union itself. Good. Um, it I was 90 either. minutes, which is approaching Bill Clinton in terms of length. Um, well, but no, that's entertaining because it's not Bill Clinton. But as political scientists, h- does the State of the Union matter? And if it does matter, how does it matter?
2: Okay. Well, the short answer on does the State of the Union matter? It, in terms of uh, policy outcomes and public opinion, the answer is generally no. <laughs> um, so, yep. um, in many ways, I think most uh, American political scientists view the State of the Union as sort of an overglorified pageant. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's really it, it's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. Ugly people. Exactly. <laughs> yep. That's pretty much it. Yep. <laughs> um, it, it does. It, you know, basically, there's. Sometimes the State of the Union will slightly bump public opinion on certain issues. Right. Um, but that will go away within weeks of the State of the yep. Union actually happening. Yep. Um, at best, what the State of the Union does, and occasionally it does have this impact, so this is the one impact it can have, is it can raise a certain issue um, to uh, to prominence that the president mm-hmm. wants to be at the center of the agenda. So if, a, if you have a particularly skilled president, occasionally presidents have been able to do this where they essentially are able to say this is my priority, and they highlight that, and they use the State of the Union as a moment to really raise that. But A lot of times what presidents then have to do is um, engage in a massive public, uh, basically public uh, relations campaign following the State of the Union to basically maintain momentum for that. Um, Mm -hmm. It can't just be the State of the Union. It's not that the State of the Union alone is enough to actually make something happen. So President Obama, for example... um, Used to used uh, statements to Congress to really highlight the Affordable Care Act and try to right. push that right. um, and he was effective at that. I mean, that was that that was that was those speeches were used effectively, but they weren't alone. It was part of a massive campaign mm-hmm. on on his part to try to advance um, the, uh, the health care bills. Um, and so, you know, another example is. That didn't work out so well, um, but did kind of show some of the significance is uh, President George W. Bush during his second term, basically using the the State of the Union to highlight a uh, a new plan to privatize Social Security. Um, And that did raise the issue that did sort of that was a moment that he effectively used to sort of Zero in on this is a priority and I want Congress to think about it unfortunately Congress Did think about it and then rejected it but but. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, So So that's not necessarily you know if you're George W. Bush that wasn't the ending he wanted But nonetheless it was an example of Sort of highlighting an issue but in terms of does this actually move public opinion significantly? The answer is, is resoundingly, really no. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't move public opinion. Um, and part of the reason for that is very few people watch the State of the Union in terms of yep. relative in relative terms. Um, it used to be the case, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the 1960s and 70s, sort of the golden age of uh, network television, right. um, when everybody had to watch it, and it was during prime <laughs> time. It was the only thing on. You know, you flip right. to every channel, and the president's on every single one. So right. a lot of Americans would watch it. It's a very significant percentage of Americans would watch it. Whereas now, you know, sure, the president gets at most maybe like 30 million viewers. Um, yeah. Usually it's a little bit less than that. Um, but, you know, you think about that. I mean, that's less than 10 percent of the nation. And so yeah, right. it really is a, a relatively small audience, given that this is supposed to be the president's one chance to, quote, unquote, address the nation. And right. so it, it really doesn't stand a chance in some ways in terms of actually moving things in an effective in an effective way. Um, Can
1: I confess when I was a kid and we only had the four channels <laughs> <this> and <laughs> all, of, the all of them were showing the State of the Union address? Yeah. I would flip back and forth to see how the t- like the. T- Essentially, the tone, like the fil like the color filter, oh, yeah. <laughs> changed <laughs> from channel to channel. Like, wow. was the president more oh washed out on goodness. one channel, or had you know, <laughs> was a, it had a darker, darker tint on the other channel? Yeah, I that's would, good. Yeah, that so was my that was my jam.
0: So basically, yeah. you're checking the lighting specialist. Yeah, because right. that was the only like, right. variation. Because right. it was right. just
1: where the, the cameras were all basically in the same place, right. in the house chamber. Right. Right. So yeah. you're just like, okay, who's, yeah. you know, who's adjusting <laughs> their color differently?
0: Nice. Oh, that's fine. Anyway, glad, um, <laughs> glad you did that. Um, yeah. I, you know, I I totally agree though. I don't think yeah, it basically doesn't matter in terms of actually doing much of anything. It's a chance for people to score points with core constituencies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like the president's supporters are going to be happy about the things he highlighted, but they're going to feel like he tried to give a unifying speech and the Democrats are just being recalcitrant. For Democrats, it's a chance to show that they, are, you know, the things they've, you know, they oppose um, by you know prominent eye rolls, grimaces. Um, you know you you bring you bring in guests that highlight your know, your opposition to certain things the president's doing the pageantry the body um, language is beautiful that kind of stuff right <laughs> it's gorgeous um, there was kind of apparently like and i didn't watch it i only read the the um the transcript and then you know um listened to the best to, part or, was when maroon 5 came out and played yeah i heard <laughs> um, that was great um they redeemed themselves after the super bowl apparently anyway but so but, i mean apparently there was kind of a nice moment about the president did acknowledge sort of that we have now a record number of women in congress um and it was kind of a nice I'm um, a nice moment where the two sides could just celebrate that together, and that was something. So, but sort of, sort of, <laughs> yeah, right? But so um, it's worth noting yeah. here that although uh,
1: Donald Trump did save this moment right. for um, midway through the speech at the 45-minute yeah. marker, so yeah. he he made uh, reference to the fact that there are more women now in Congress mm-hmm. than ever before. Uh, we know um, this uh, because we're political scientists. Right. This is one of those data things. The number of Republican women in Congress has actually declined. Right. right. Con- with the most recent election, right. the Republican Party became more male. Right. Uh, all of those gains, and then some, were on the Democratic side. Yep. And Democratic women, mostly women, a few men, but mostly women, collaborated. To a number of them wore all white right, uh, right. to the State of the Union address, and the ostensible reason was for for um uh, to for suffragettes right, um, right, uh, right. to identify with with, uh, with the suffrage movement. Yep. And um, basically, when he made mention of this, those Democratic women uh, hijacked the, the State of the Union address for a of for a significant period, much longer than yeah. he was intending. I right, think. Right. Um, right. Uh, for sort sure. of cheering and chanting USA right. and um. Right. Right. Um, didn't really throw him off his speech per se, but definitely yeah. was a moment that I think probably looked good for people who are Democrats who are watching the. Oh, sure. Watching yeah. the union you know, probably enjoyed that more to, than Republicans yeah.
0: did. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. For sure. But it would have been probably worse for him if he hadn't mentioned it, right, too. Like, it's. Yes. In, so I'd, I think. Certainly. Um, you're better off. doing that. But uh, yeah, on the whole, I mean, like, this doesn't move things on policy. Like, the, the president's policy proposals were predictable. They, um, you know, have no increased chance <laughs> based on the State of the Union. Right. And yeah. you know, if you like him, you still liked him at the end of that speech. If you opposed him, um, nothing in that speech would have changed your mind, right? So, sure. so yeah. So <laughs> this is one of those things where the
1: chattering classes, the poli- the pundits, the news media maybe pays more attention that it should right. to the State mm-hmm. of the Union. Yeah. Um, and we and we as political scientists probably pay a little bit less attention yep. to this. Yep.
0: Yep. Yep. It's like the um, Wolof proverb. So I grew up in Senegal. As okay. you guys know. And there's a Wolof <laughs> proverb that says, um, 10 men dig a deep hole. 10 men fill it. There's a lot of dust, but there's no hole. And, <laughs> and that's basically <laughs> what the State of the Union is. Um, so, yep. Yeah. Right. Lots of dust. I'm going to, I'm going to use that at yeah. some yeah, right. point. Probably, a probably at a faculty <laughs> committee meeting. So, yes. <laughs> uh, sometime <laughs> in the near future. That's actually a very good description of many yes, faculty yes, committees. I, I
2: agree. <laughs> yep.
1: Well, so. speaking of... of Of ten men, Um, can we talk a little bit about the 2020 presidential race? Like ten women, I think. (laughs) um, Again, we're not going to break down the the odds of Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and uh, um, Pete Buttigieg and um, whoever else might be running because we're Um,
0: we're not allowed to access those sites at Bethel. (laughs) Well, the 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 betting sites. (laughs) Oh, you'd
1: be surprised. Um, Anyway, uh, Chris has a workaround.
0: (laughs) It is funny, like so certain certain betting betting sites, that you will get blocked. Like, like you're just like trying to look up odds in these things, mm-hmm. and, and they'll, um, yeah. So you got to be careful which ones you go to. Apparently, I'm mean, like, oh, access, okay. access denied. Okay. Try the try the Scottish ones first. Okay, <laughs> um,
1: let me ask this: uh, What, as political scientists, at this stage of the presidential race, what should people be paying attention to? Or another way of saying this: What underlying processes? are are important right now in the selection process that will ultimately lead to the twenty twenty election.
2: Yeah. So I, I think I think there are a couple of things you can you can look at that are sort of proxies for seeing who's a really viable candidate, one of them is just is just pure fundraising. Um, okay. so if it, somebody is able show to show me the money, right? If somebody is already raising a lot of money and lining up big donors, um, they they have a serious chance. Um, unless
1: their name, uh, geez, unless unless they, unless they possess a large coffee chain, in which case then all the money well. in the world is not going to buy them the presidency. <laughs> the, the, yes. Okay.
2: Um, yeah, I mean that's so that's that's one thing. I mean, it's just to see how are they able to build a real campaign organization mm-hmm. um, and, and and start to actually get 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 real money lined up. Right. Um, beyond that, uh, another thing to, to look at and to kind of see who's uh, serious is to see who seems to be um, having an impact at the at the early states. So thinking about like Iowa, uh, South right. Carolina, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, and if and if people seem to be getting some traction at, in those states. Um, then they are probably somebody to watch. Um, it's not that that's right. the end-all, be-all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people will win those states and then lose ultimately the nomination, but it's usually an indicator. Um, so that's those are a couple of things to kind of watch, who's 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 doing a good job sort of with their time in those states and who's, who's raising a lot of money.
0: I mean, because we, we really haven't nominated somebody who didn't win one of those three, right? Yeah, I think that's correct. I can't yeah. think of any... Yeah examples of somebody who didn't win at least one of those three right. Right. and won the nomination. So, you, I mean, whatever yeah. you do, you really kind of have to find a path because it, it it just gets hard to spin, like, oh, yeah, you should stick with me, supporters, if you haven't won anything. Right. right. I mean, right. And so kind of winning attracts more winning. Um, so I think, yeah, like sort of outlining that viable path. I think the That's challenge here is, is thinking about, like, how does, how does the election of Donald Trump change all this, right? Because mm-hmm. Trump sort of beat down a lot of that traditional logic last time. And what's – the question is, like, did the game change or – it was that kind of an anomaly, right? So the the answer you gave, Mitch, I think is right. I mean, like in traditional terms, like you know, you, you need to fundraise, you need to show that you have support among the kind of who's who of the party. Um, so that kind yep. of your infrastructure is built up, comes together. Trump was sloppy about building infrastructure. He didn't fundraise all that much, right. um, what but he, he got, got
1: enormous he, amounts of free free coverage from right. the media.
0: He got a an right. ton of free media. Um, he sucked the oxygen out of the room, and it was a huge pool, which the d- Democrats are likely to have a huge pool too. You know, and so I think one of the things I'm going to watch too, in addition to those kind of traditional factors, is is there somebody who's really attracting a lot of attention and really driving the narrative? Because that's what Trump did. And so even though he was, you know, not the kind of person who should normally have been rejected, who didn't kind of check those traditional boxes, um, it turned out that that attention he got ended up translating to votes. And
1: so let me interrupt you and let me ask you to I'm going to break my own rule here. (laughs) <laughs> because I think you're right. Sucking air out of the room is an incredibly powerful and important dynamic that Trump introduced mm-hmm. that's likely to be true for the Democrats as well. Who within the current field or likely field has the most capacity to do that, to deprive other candidates of airtime? Hmm.
0: Yeah, or maybe there isn't one, in which case that's fine too. There's not an obvious Trumpian figure at this point for me Yeah. in the, in the Democrats. Not Elizabeth I Warren. Mean, yeah, probably not. I
2: mean, yeah. you
0: know, I can, I can, I can imagine like Elizabeth Warren being that person. I can imagine maybe Kamala Harris being that person. Really? Um, yeah. I mean, j- well, just because I think she brings a lot of things the Democrats are looking for, um, mm-hmm. and you know, so I can imagine that. Um, I mean, I can imagine. She, I, well, no, I can't really imagine that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't know. Um, I, th- I think in some ways, I mean, the, the person who probably could have done this the best if they were ten years younger is Bernie Sanders. Yeah. So maybe. I think if Bernie Sanders yeah. were running this time instead of last time in the same way, yeah. he mm-hmm. might have stood a better chance of of being that person who sort of just was became larger than life and okay, right. And, and he actually but might he's too have had, old at this point. Right. He might have had a chance to himself. win in a
0: field of fifteen. Right. right. But when he was one on one with Hillary, there was too much consolidating around her. I mean, right. Because right. that's what happened with Trump. Right. Is like. The who's who of the Republican Party agreed Donald Trump's a bad idea. We shouldn't do this, right? Right. But they couldn't agree. What they couldn't agree on is, okay, so who are we consolidating around? Is it right. Jeb Bush? Is it John Kasich? Is it <laughs> clearly know, not Rubio? Jeb Bush? Yeah. <laughs> clearly, but but early on it was right. Yeah. I mean, like they were giving right. a bunch of money to Jeb, right. and that that hurt people like Rubio and Kasich, right? Who mm-hmm. might have with earlier investment might have been able to consolidate that. I mean, or what, even was it Ted right. Cruz and some for some in the kind of more conservative side of the party, right? right. So, you know, you had that kind of. That kind of problem for the Republicans, I think the Democrats could end up with that. What it's not clear to me is that they have right now that kind of Trump figure. Um, on the other hand, I think we're not done adding to the field. So no, absolutely not. Uh, right. In fact, indeed, our own Senator Amy Klobuchar is making a big announcement a on big Sunday. A big announcement? And, I seriously and doubt it. It's that she's
1: throwing her allegiances behind Kirk <laughs> Cousins for Vikings <Biden's> quarterback. <laughs> that might be more popular in Minnesota. Yes, it would, yeah. But yes, it would. Yes. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. I do want to say one other thing, just as you talked about, you know, has Trump changed the rules of the game? Trump may or may not have changed the rules of the game. I'm inclined to think he has. Mm -hmm. But I also can just say, even without Trump, the rules of the game have changed. Mm -hmm. And a couple ways for people to pay attention to, Mm -hmm. um, one, states control when they hold their primaries. And a number of states have shifted their primaries. And so although states like Iowa and New Hampshire still matter a great deal— uh, other larger, more populous, and more diverse states have right. also moved their primaries up much, much earlier in the right. cycle. Right. And especially for Democrats, yeah. look to play a much larger role. California is much earlier, for example, mm-hmm. in the primary cycle this yeah. year. So, right. folks like Kamala Harris potentially could get a big boost right. if they can do really well in California. Yep. Yep. Uh, the other thing that's changed is um, after. Uh, the 2016 election and, and uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and the and the row over superdelegates uh, Democrats have taken some steps to really cut back the influence of right. mm. superdelegates in yep. their own primary selection process. Yep. Yep. So in some ways the Democratic primary has gotten more democratic. Yeah it is.
0: Um, which is not necessarily a good thing actually if you want to correct if you want to select the, the best candidate but
1: right it, it might open up the door for a more populist candidate yep. in some ways. Right.
0: Yep. So but it's yeah it's very early right now and it's just you know we'll have to see i mean like there's some people who are gonna who won't even make it to iowa right so right um yep we shall see well guys um we have a lot
1: more to talk about but we don't have a lot more time today Um, before we break uh, i want a couple of quick announcements we'll be back in your feed uh, really soon probably is early probably next week um, either with another standard EST podcast, or we're going to continue our ongoing saga of our uh, <laughs> politics of fictional worlds. Uh, we're really excited to uh, um, introduce you to our, our next fictional world, which is Harry Potter, which seems increasingly relevant for us. Um, oh, there are some Horcruxes, my friends. Um, but before uh, we go today, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Crum to do a little show and tell. Uh, where were mm-hmm.
2: you and what have you brought back to show us? So, at the end, so last week, uh, I was actually, I escaped all of the super bitter cold. Um, you escaped the polar vortex. Tomorrow. Escaped the polar vortex. Well, that's true. I'm still going to experience tomorrow's bitter cold. We saves them for you. Um, but yes, I did escape the. Was the polar Tomorrow's the JV of the bitter cold. <laughs> right, <though. laughs> right. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's a little cousin. Um, and uh, yeah, we went, to my, my wife and. Uh, our our family went down to uh, Florida and we went to Disney. So we were at Disney World and then on a Disney cruise. Um, and um, I was I was asked by the other EST folks to bring back something for show and tell. And so I brought back uh, this. I was I was we were at the. Uh, hundred acre goods store, wow. which is That's just a, so clever. which is which is just outside of the winnie the Pooh ride mm-hmm. and uh, which by the way was was uh, my son emerson 's first Disney ride if anyone Aww. cares so uh, but at any rate, once we got out of there, they had a cup, which is, is a large turvis mug um, so wait, this is like a double walled insulated right, mug right double walled insulated mug, and it has Winnie the Pooh characters on it with a, a. Milne's um, uh, drawings, but basically, what I love about this mug is everything on it is very British. So, yes. mm-hmm. uh, Winnie the Pooh is wearing the big uh, sort of beef eater like uh, Royal Guard hat. Yep. Um, the there are blocks, but they spell out UK. There's a double decker bus. Um, Tigger is wearing like a Sherlock Holmes hat and carrying mm-hmm. a you know Union Jack, and then Eeyore has this sort of like uh, saddle blanket thing on him that has the crown. Um, of course there's a teacup and an umbrella is there
1: some kind of subversive uh, cl- uh, imperialist message there I don't
2: any? know well here's well here, here's the, here's my favorite part so this is my favorite part about it is uh, piglet is looking at a globe uh-huh. and it is a globe so at first glance it just looks like they're looking at the world right I mean they're just all kind of gathered around this globe looking at yeah. the world but if you look closely at it the entire world is just the UK yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's just the,
2: the uh, you know it's just yeah. the British Isles that's yeah. all that you could yeah. that's and it fills up the entire right. globe globe is what you can see so this is (laughs)
1: either really poor geography or the sun never sets in the british empire exactly yep Yep. Yep. yeah so
0: at any rate or just um, how people
2: view their themselves in their country mm -hmm. right i mean yep yep so it's a lovely picture it also has a lovely quote on it which which just says you can't stay in your own corner of the forest waiting for others to come to you you have to go to them sometimes which is also very nice but i love the commentary on brexit this is true. Ooh. This is true. I hadn't thought about that, but that is that is. Um, <laughs> that's another thing we should probably a subversive talk about uh, message yes. about Brexit. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think actually, just speaking of Brexit, maybe I know this is dragging us back into our conversation. But I think <laughs> one thing that's interesting by way of piglet. By way of piglet, one thing that is interesting, and I was thinking about this uh, yesterday and, and today a little bit was. I think when we think about the ineffectiveness of the State of the Union, um, it's interesting to sort of compare that with uh, the UK and other forms of government. I mean, in that when the prime minister addresses parliament that has impact and clout when when teresa may yeah, talks right. to parliament that has significant impact um and usually carries policy discussions forward whereas with our presidential system with the president who is not officially part of congress when the president addresses congress it has much less impact and usually sure. it has draws policy in a much less effective way anyway that's a really nice go. piece of context good uh,
1: well guys we will be back in your feed real soon thanks for joining us um, uh, stay tuned for more things coming down the Live from AC Second uh, channel. You can always get a hold of us from Election Shock Therapy directly at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can email the show uh, channel in general at live from AC second at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and until we do, go Royals.